Good afternoon, everybody. This is Corey Hepler, your host for the Crazy Monkey Inc. podcast. I'm here with the ever-talented, amazing, kind of foxy, <laughs> Jared Gifford, hey. who writes Darum, Captain of the Stars, and a litany of other fantastic comics that are going to be coming out soon. I am the writer and creator of Taxi Cab Joe, Sexy Zombie Hunters, Yep. And a myriad of other things that should be seeing fruition throughout this year. And some novelettes coming up. Praise Jesus. <laughs> now, we've got a topic that's kind of near and dear to our hearts. And we wanted to share some mm -hmm. little gems on how we approach research and writing certain yeah. genres that we feel would help you out when you decide to write your comic, your novel, mm -hmm. however you decide, and whatever you decide to write on. Yeah, and what Corey and I also want to emphasize is the fact that, remember, what we're doing is we're giving you a guideline. Nobody writes the same, and we understand this. Um, so what we're trying to give you is a guideline. This is These are just the tools we use in order to do proper research for the stuff that we're doing. However, if you find this doesn't work for you, it's okay if you don't do it exactly the way we do it. Just find what works for you, but it is important. It is important that whatever you are writing on, if it's something that requires that you that, that you need to have a lot of detail it is important to do the research and know that we are definitely going to get offended if you don't take any of our advice into consideration <laughs> <laughs> even though we just told you to the contrary <laughs> exactly. tears and kleenex you're just gonna flow <laughs> so i have a question for you jared what is it when you're researching say Ronan Brothers or Darum, what are some tools or some research techniques that you use to make it more fulfilling? Oh, well, um, that actually is a good point, and I'll get to that in just a minute, but okay. I did want to take at least one opportunity, get this out of the way quickly. Okay. Um, first, I want to I urge people to go to the Indie Planet website, check out our comics, you know, because that's how we make our bread and butter. <laughs> you know, and the, so, true. so yeah, so please look, uh, look up Crazy Monkey Inc. You'll find all our titles there. Um, you know, you'll find Corey's uh, Adventures of Taxi Cab Joe. You'll find my Darum books. You'll find uh, Midnight's Avenger. You'll find uh, uh, Death Squad Zero. You'll find uh, Vorpal, Cherry uh, Bullet, Cherry Bullet, Atoli's Finder, uh, Monsters on the Run. Uh, it's, uh, anything we do there, like I said, I'm, I'm no, I'm forgetting a bunch of stuff, but everything Crazy Monkey Inc. You will find there. Exactly. Um, and like I said, or if you want to look up specific titles, that's great too. I suggest Darren. <laughs> He's not shamelessly plugging himself at all, people. Just wanted to let you know that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and, and then uh, yeah. So if you want to do look up Crazy Monkey Inc. and that's Inc. with a K. Um, and, uh, anyway, yeah, check it out. Uh, digital copies, fifty. uh, print copies are $5. Uh, please, uh, you know, uh, if you love them, share them amongst your friends, tell people about it, get other people to come over and check it out. We always love it when people love our, uh, love what we create and, 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 and the stories that we come up with. Exactly. Uh, oh yeah. And so, yeah, just wanted to, yeah, just get that shameless plug out of the way. And, uh, and then anyway, back, back onto, um, I'm, I'm doing research and stuff. Uh, 
my the thing I that works for me that I like to do is um, I just um, I like to find things that are considered to be good authorities on um, on the subject that I'm researching. Okay. Because you've got you got a myriad of sources all over the place, but the problem is is you want to make sure you're getting legit ones. Um, the biggest problem when doing research is. Um, you know, you, you you know, like while you can get some good information here and there, like you want to avoid, um, you want to avoid still for the moment things like Wikipedia, because even though some of it does have some good and, and even sometimes useful information, the problem is is they're still not perfect yet, and there's still a lot of information that keeps getting changed from time to time. Um, so you're wanting constant information. Yeah. So consistent information. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I actually find the the best sources is to either go straight to, uh, like if you're gonna if you're gonna do research on the web, go to go to legit websites like like you know go to like National Geographic because that's legit. Um, I would say go to um, go to like some of the History Channel links because yes. they'll have legit links for maybe what you're researching. Um, you know, this, this, um, um, but then it is also depends on genre because, like, the like, like, this is the stuff I'm using for like Ronan Brothers mm -hmm. because, uh, I'm doing, I'm finding, trying to find a lot of, um, older Japanese texts which help me out with certain things, uh, certain, certain books on Asian philosophies and, uh, um, <clears throat> and then, um, also, uh, also some, some of the better, uh, bits of fiction that they have, of course, um, and, uh, but then, but then you know you need to do have different research for like like when I'm doing Darum, you know, uh, I, I, that's more stuff on uh, that that I research more um, old school sci-fi stuff too because the feeling I want it, wanted to have um, that one I'm, I'm I'm going back and I'm reading a lot of the old action adventure stories um, I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm I'm watching films like uh, you know things like Star Wars and 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 shows like Buck Rogers and uh, um and and then and then also one of my big personal favorites Captain Harlock. Yes. Um, and you're also watching the Zatoichi series as well. Um, well that that's also part of research for my Ronin brothers. Yeah. Um, but like I said, so just depending on what you are researching, um, because with. Um, and, and, but then, you know, sometimes with a certain bits of technology, I'll go and I'll look up certain science manuals to basically say, okay, well, can this at least be plausible or something like that? But then, but then at the same time, um, with Darum, I'm not doing hard sci-fi. Yeah. So I'm not going to go ultra detailed, like say what Isaac Asimov or even like Gene Roddenberry does. Mm -hmm. Um, what I'm doing is more sort of a space opera kind of thing. So, so... Um, what I do is I just take existing technologies and then I just kind of give them a futuristic take. I mean, you know, instead of using, instead of using guns and pistols, we use, you know, laser, we use laser pistols and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, and, uh, you know, uh, instead of using, um, instead, um, instead of using like, uh, like, on, like on the big battleships, instead of using like big cannons, we use um we use laser cannons yeah um you know um instead of instead of regular bombs we use like plasma bombs and 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 electric bombs and you know um just something that has a little bit of a sci-fi element to it 
Um, but in, yeah, in researching that, I try to, uh, I, I, tr I really dive deep into, like, a lot of the action-adventure serials when I'm researching Darum. Now, um, when you're researching, mm -hmm. um, do you read a lot of different authors that are in the same vein and genre that you're writing I as do. well? I do, um, I do, uh, once again, it, it depends on what I'm, what I'm, uh, doing, like I said, with, with, uh, Ronan Brothers, I'm, I'm reading a whole lot of... Things about uh, about Miyamoto Musashi. Um, I you know I'm I'm reading a lot of books on Bushido. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, and then uh, I'm I'm reading a lot of things from like uh, some some of the uh, some of the great uh, um, sort of um, older Asian philosophers. Uh -huh. um, and um, with uh, with Darum, what I do is I research a lot of the old. Um, like I said, the old sci-fi stuff. I mean, with Darum, I mean, you know, I read, I've been reading, I, I read a lot of Frank Herbert. Um, I, uh, I'm also, as I said, I'm reading a lot of uh, Liji Masamoto. Yes. Um, I'm reading, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, even some of the old uh, serial stuff, like, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, like, like the Flash Gordon stuff. Like, I, you know, I go back and I read the original Alex Raymond stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, it well, and then even like John Carver Mars, uh, w which Edgar Rice Burroughs did. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, and um, so yeah, like I said, it just depends on the genre you're doing. Uh, like uh, then when uh, when you and I did that uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, book together. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of research not only into Sherlock Holmes, but then also crime, uh, crime and investigation during the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, uh, read up a lot on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, and uh, um, and then and then uh, you know I watched a lot of movies uh, as to help me with research. Uh, two great, um, well, I, I guess I should say three great, three great um, Sherlock Holmes movies that helped me set the tone for the graphic novel we did was uh one was uh and, and, and you know you always have to mention this uh, no matter what Sherlock Holmes you're doing is uh one was the great mouse detective okay that that definitely helps out um another one is uh murder by decree yes that's a that's a must need and for those who don't aren't familiar uh, you, you should check it out you got two two great actors in it um and actually I'm going to say there's four there was four Sherlock Holmes, and, uh, but I'll get into the other ones in a minute. But yeah, two great actors that were in uh, Murder by Decree. Christopher Plummer playing as Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. And then you have James Mason playing as Watson. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just really great, uh, a really great uh, take on that. And for those who don't uh, know, the, the plot centers around basically... Sherlock Holmes and Watson actually investigating the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so very, very good. I, I highly recommend it. Check it out. Um, another one is, um, is the, um, is, I mean, I know there are many iterations of this, but they had the Hound of the Baskervilles. And the version I'm talking about, though, is the 1958 version with uh, Peter Cushing. Okay. Yeah, Peter Cushing playing as Sherlock Holmes. So you're not talking about the uh, Rathbone one. Uh, the Rathbone one is good as well. Is good as well. But okay. uh, but if I was going to recommend 
the best out of all of them, and, and please don't get me wrong, I love Rathbone. I love the stuff he did. But to tell you the truth, I think that out of all the classic actors, one of the best Sherlock Holmes was Peter Cushing. Okay. Uh, Peter Cushing just, he, he was he was really great, you know, at showing not only how smart he was, but but also kind of how um, socially inept he was as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, 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 <coughs> definitely check out check out the the uh, the Peter Cushing version of of uh, Hand of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. um, and um, and then finally uh, the last one that really helped to make the tone for that graphic novel for me was Young Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, once again, I'm going to catch you up. Um, Young Sherlock Holmes was a film they made in 1985, and Steven Spielberg actually executive produced it. Um, and uh, anyway, it's pretty much tells it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a story. It's a what if story because the whole thing was is that it had been well established in the Sherlock Holmes uh, books that Watson and Sherlock hadn't met till they were adults. Yeah. But, but what this did, and I liked it was it basically, it basically kind of gave you a what if scenario. Like what if Sherlock Holmes and Watson had actually met each other when they, when they were, when they were still basically high school students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, anyway, um, in this, uh, in, in this movie, um, Basically, um, there are these people that are experiencing hallucinations, and then what happens is that these hallucinations are so horrific, they end up killing themselves, um, and, uh, what happens is, is that, uh, um, uh, uh, after Sherlock and, and Watson meet, um, you know, Sherlock is this sort of prominent, uh, really smart, uh, really smart kid in his school, in, in the in the academy that he goes to, but you know a lot of the people are jealous of him because they don't uh, because they uh, you know because um, even though he's highly intelligent you know they don't they don't they don't like his arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, anyway, during the course of all this, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson find out that these people who've been dying, uh, having these hallucinatory dreams, basically. What happens is that they are being drugged by this cult that had formed in London that were um, that were basically they were descendants and remnants of an Egyptian cult um, that uh, that that had come over there after because uh, I guess there was some kind of um, uh, uh, some some kind of uh, um, uh, massacre that had happened. They they don't elaborate too much, but they basically go into there was this massacre that happened, and uh, what had happened was it left a lot of children orphaned. Okay. And uh, and two of the two of the children basically vowed revenge, and then they basically formed up this cult, went to went to London, and basically started drugging these people who they thought were basically responsible for killing their family members. Hmm. Um, oh yeah, pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, anyway, yeah, Sherlock Holmes figures that, figures that out. And, uh, and yeah, you just, uh, it's, it's, it's really awesome. It's one of those things where you basically kind of get to, um, it's a cool what if story, you know, like basically like what if you got to see Sherlock Holmes before he was Sherlock Holmes, you know, and, and then you get to see Watson before he was like, you know, the Watson that, you know, nice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, a lot of those, those, 
stories played a played a part in in the research that I did for uh, for that one. So, as I said, it's just for me. It depends on what I'm writing, what genre I'm writing, um, the material changes, what I read. Um, changes depending on what genre I'm writing so that's that's what I do is I'm basically just trying to find materials that I find will get me in the proper mood get me in the proper headspace but then also provide me with great information that you know doesn't doesn't feel like uh that doesn't feel like I'm just kind of uh you know making this up off the top of my head that uh that that this that even though this is a fictitious story, you know some some of these things you could be like, oh okay okay well you know um, that you know that makes sense to a degree. Okay. And what about you? Uh, what's your uh, research process, Corey? Um, when I'm researching something like say a comic book, um, what I will do is I'll dig into uh, movies of that genre. I'll mm-hmm. dig into uh, books. Mm-hmm. And I'll even dig into, like, uh, magazine articles mm-hmm. that maybe the magazine, such as Popular Science, I read a lot of Popular Science to learn um, some different lingo and how people talked during the sci-fi era mm-hmm. so that when I was writing Tax Cab Joe, he didn't seem so nowish. It was more in the future of how they talked and... It didn't yeah. seem so urbanish. Well, um, it well, um, it to me uh, and and uh, uh, when I read it, it, it no, it it feels urban, but it feels more like urban of the future. Mm-hmm. Like, like you know that they don't come from nowadays, but you can kind of tell that their language evolved from the language that we have now. Yeah. <laughs> now, when when I've been writing my poetry or my horror stories or something like that. Mm-hmm. I will dig into Anne Rice, Dean Coons, Clive Barker, Stephen King. Oh yes, uh, definitely. Edgar Motherfucking Allan Poe. <laughs> uh, H.P. Motherfucking Lovecraft. <laughs> Stephen King. Stephen Motherfucking King. Yeah. So you, when you're researching how to do a certain genre, it's almost like you have to take the elite crop of the ones that have paved the way for everybody else to have a shot uh. in order to figure out how you want to, in a way, homage yeah. well, the I'll, writing of the era. I'll even add to that. Um, the thing is, is uh, no, and that's good as well, but even if they're not considered the cream of the crop, um, I would definitely say one thing that it definitely uh, you should do and, 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 and will impact your writing is you should also um, take, you should also, you should also, um, uh, how do I put it, is uh, not, not, uh, not entirely copy and paste from your, from, from your influences, but like your, your favorite influential authors and people, you should at least uh take i guess take a cue from mm-hmm. basically um basically what is it what you need to think about is what is it about those authors that thrills you why do you like them so much and then and then if that's something and then when you can pinpoint what you like about them 
then you can infuse some of that into your stories. Now, granted, you're doing it in your own way and you're yeah. using your own voice, mm -hmm. but if you can pinpoint what you like about your favorite authors and, and if you can at least replicate that in your own way, yeah, um, then I would suggest doing that. The originality of incorporation through mm -hmm. authors that have gone before us yeah. that paved the way for these different genres to become a thing is the type of research that any writer should be doing well, anyway. It's passing the torch. Yeah. When you really think about it, it's passing the torch. What, what you're really doing is you're just, you're actually taking in the lessons that the ones who've come before you are teaching. And, and, and then what you're doing is you're, you're doing that to make yourself more wise and then, and then to actually help you out with your stories. And then that way, when we become the old farts, which we're slowly starting to become, yeah, uh, then we can pass that on to the generation after us. Someone had asked me about my novellas that I was going to be writing. And they asked yeah. me, are you going to be using the graphic language and the maturity from your comics and enhancing it into your no into your novels and mm -hmm. novellas and I said no and it shocked him mm -hmm. because it was like well why would you change up from what you do to your comics to your to your novels mm -hmm. and I told him my comics are strictly for adults and they always will be yeah for my novels and my novellas I'm still going to write in a very mature fashion so that people understand this is coming from an adult. This isn't coming from a teenager or a 20-something year. Yeah. Um, but it's very going to be very much of an all-age, um, young adult type. So that someone, say, they're 13, 14, they want to get into reading, and they re pick up one of my novellas, their parents yeah. don't have to feel um, mm -hmm. that they're going to be reading something that has graphic language, graphic violence, anything that has, you know, graphic sexual situations and that they can yeah. feel safe that that novella or novel is going to be something that they can go, okay, this is an author that we can just let them read and not have to worry about. And that's the kind of yeah. author I want to be because I realized throughout the history of writing that to become a great author... Not mm -hmm. only do you have to hit a genre that you love doing, mm -hmm. you also have to hit um, an audience mm -hmm. wide enough that enough people can read it so that, A, you can gain and keep that reputation with that audience, mm -hmm. and B, at the end of the day, writing, you know, it's about money, yeah. in a sense. And if you're not broadening your horizon with how you write you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot from different classes mm -hmm. of like the adolescents or the adults or the middle-aged who <coughs> yeah. would read what you wrote but you decided to twist it in such a way that now it only has a tiny niche yeah. and now you've capped it off to well, this isn't for teenagers anymore. This is just for adults. Yeah. And you have basically... Closed off an entire demographic. Exactly. And yeah. that is something, if you're a sincere author who wants to read a wide, reach a wide enough audience, you don't want to do that. And that's exactly what I'm going to be doing with my novels and novellas. Well, and then not only that, but then uh, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that... Um, 
uh, writing a novel and writing a comic book, even though they can both, even though they both still require a lot of effort and they both still do require to have those creative energies, uh, the thing is, is that they're, 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 when it comes to the approach of how you do the story on them, they're, they're very different in, in this regard, is the fact that with comic books, you gotta think, uh, at least the way I do it, you gotta think it more in terms of a movie script, basically. You're describing what the characters are doing, and then giving them the dialogue. Yeah. Um... But but you can't describe it in a way that you would like a novel because a lot of people say, "Isn't what you do with novels?" But no, it's different. As I said, you got to think of it more as a movie script when it comes to comic books. Basically, you have you have to write out what the scene is. You have to describe it to the artist in a way that they're going to understand and be able to draw that. Yeah, exactly. You have to like you really have to basically describe what it is you want. The artist to draw, uh-huh. and then, as I said, then, 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 almost give direct lines to each characters, and then whether or not you know there's a caption box or something or uh-huh. any other kind of thing, or maybe somebody's having a thought, um, and uh, and then uh, with novels, with novels, no, it's actually you know you, you that. Is I mean, because with comic books, it's it's a very different beast, as I said. Um, you got to write it more like movie scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, with novels, you basically have to be everything, because with novels, basically all they're getting is the words. So you have to have the words tell them everything. Exactly. Basically, uh, that that's what you where the prowess is different. Like you know, because. Um, an example I would use, like, if I was writing a line in a com in a comic book, and maybe say I wanted a guy to come in with an axe. Yeah. I'd describe the scene that, uh, that such and such character comes in with a large golden colored axe, um, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and I would, you know, and I would tell, uh, and I would tell the artist, like, you know, the, um, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, the guy comes in with this, you know, he's, uh, uh, you know, he's raising his hands above his head to swing it down, and, uh, and, and then he, uh, makes a large laugh or something. Mm-hmm. That's the way I would describe it. However, if I was writing that in a novel, um, I would, I would have to just tell that, well, I would have to just tell it. I, I you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, dis- I wouldn't be describing it like I would, like I want somebody to draw that, I would just basically be saying the um, I would say, I would say something like the six foot five man, with a with 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 the with a broad hairy chest, mm-hmm. um, walked into the parlor, uh, walked into the parlor with with a heavy axe in hand. It was golden color. Its blades, its blades gleamed off, uh, um, gleamed off of the light. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, uh, the type of blades that you could tell had been, had been, um, had been sharpened to the point where they could cut through f- sheer bone. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I could keep on going, but what you see, you see what it is it, it, it in in a in a novel. A novel, you would say that, and then and, and then you would say, "Ha ha!" He groaned, <laughs> or 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 he cackled. Yeah. Um, and 
And, uh, whereas, uh, whereas it's set in a comic book, you would just say, you would put the scene, this is what the guy does, and then, you know, Grog says, ha-ha. Well, not really <laughs> Grog says, but basically you'd have Grog, and then in captions, ha-ha. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, let me put it this way. It's not that difficult to adapt your writing style to go from comics to novels. It's not that difficult. It's no. just a slight tweak of what you're doing. But it's just really different, like you said. Like, like the And this is just the way I write it. Like, comic book scripts for me is basically I'll, uh, I'll put, like, one panel, um, put scene, describe the scene, and then, like, if the character's talking, I'll put the character's name, then a quote next to it. Or, um, or if it's basically something that's going to be like maybe a narration or, or some kind of caption, yeah. I'll just put, I'll just put caption and then whatever I want in that caption box. Now, what's interesting is someone had asked me and, yeah. um, I would like you to clarify because I know you've written a lot, uh-huh. so you might have a little more clarification than some other people would. Is there, is there too much, mm-hmm. um... Can there be too much description in what you're writing? Or is there a fine balance? Can there be too little? Can there be too much? What would you say is like a fine balance in describing something to someone that's trying to figure out what you're seeing in your head? You know, um, I can only tell you what (laughs) I do. Yeah. um, Because once again, different things work for different people. Mm Because I mean... I mean, you know, look at Isaac Asimov. The guy could be as detailed as all hell and would probably give you a technical manual on how a pen worked. Exactly. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, um, but then but then you've got people who were uh, short and simple. Uh, look at, uh, and he's one of my favorite authors too, look at Robert E. Howard whenever he wrote Conan. He gave you just enough detail that you knew what was going on, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like you were reading a technical manual. Yeah. Um... So I would say just go with what's what works with your writing strengths. If you're better off doing less detail and you find that your story flows better doing it that way, I say do it that way. Okay. However, however on the flip side, I would also say if your if your writing uh seems to feel more comfortable to you and feels to uh, it feels like it's better when you do go into more t- detail than do that. You've got to go with what works for you, and in fact, that would be my advice. You got to go with what works for you. I I can provide people with with some tools that help me out, mm-hmm. but I always, at the end of the day, say just because this helps me out doesn't mean this will help you out. But I hope it gives you a foundation. Okay. Now, when you're writing, and you decide, okay, I've got to have a twist in this, or I've got to have a cliffhanger. How does that develop into what it is for the next story? Oh, well, I can definitely tell you uh, my love of cliffhangers actually came from uh, watching uh, watching the old episodes of Doctor Who. Well, <laughs> well there you go. Yeah, um, <laughs> because if, for those who don't know, I was like, if you watch the, at least, especially the classic series of Doctor Who, because the newer series, is, while it is good... The problem is, is they never had any cliffhangers because most of their episodes get resolved within that. Because to explain, and I'm not trying to overexplain, but uh, briefly, the the old school Doctor Who, they were like half hour episodes, and uh, and they always usually ended in cliffhangers. And uh, you know, uh, times they'd be 
two episodes, sometimes they'd be three, sometimes they'd be four, and on the rare occasion they'd be seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and as you as you remember, they would all be in parts. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the newer incarnation of Doctor Who still good, but they usually wrap things up within the course of one episode because they're now hour long episodes. Um, and there's a few exceptions. I mean, they do have a few stories that have, like, part ones and part twos. Yeah. But for the most part, yeah, you pretty much get, you pretty much get the whole entire story in the course of one episode. And, uh, like I said, whereas the old Doctor Who, the, the you know, the, the classic Doctor Who, they always had to come up with these great cliffhangers, and they've been doing it since the first incarnation of the Doctor. Yes, they have. And, uh, and, and, and um, some of my favorites, though... Um, they always had great ones over the years, but some of my favorites came from both the third and fourth Doctor eras, which was, uh, John Pertwee and, and then Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, and, and, and Tom Baker had some, some really great ones. Oh, hell yeah, he did. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, um, one, uh, you know, uh, one cliffhanger I liked, and this was kind of a little bit of a different one, but there was one, uh, there was one episode where, um, Tom Baker's character, uh, the, the Doctor, where the Doctor had, um, he gone to this planet, and uh, what happened was they were uh, the people living there were actually descendants of a wreck, of a wrecked spaceship crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what had happened was they had created this somewhat primitive society, um, you know, because uh, many of them were almost kind of like cavemanish or tribalish. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, but but you they were descendants of this high technology thing. But what had happened was you found out their society was so kind of weird like that because what had happened was the computer had had um, obtained sentience. And what had happened was <coughs> Tom Baker uh, talked about he had actually come across this machine before. And what happened was he at the time he didn't understand that the computer had obtained sentience mm-hmm. what he did was he thought that the computer had broken down and so what he did was he uh basically tied the computer up to his brain and basically gave the computer the information straight from his brain to basically fill in all the gaps that the computer needed to help this society run cerebral transference yeah yeah okay. and uh um but then what the problem was was he didn't um he said he didn't recognize the brain trauma or the birth trauma. He didn't recognize the birth trauma. Yeah. And what had happened was, um, when he did that, the computer ended up thinking for a long while that he was the doctor. Oh, um, okay. But then what happened was it developed, uh, but then what happened was the computer had, had a whole t- had a hard time um, um, grasping this, once again, because of the birth trauma. Mm-hmm. So it developed split personalities. So there were like three distinct personalities, one's, one of which was the doctors. And, uh, and one, one because uh, what happened was the doctor was explaining this to the computer, and then the computer was like um, starting to flip out. And I love, it had this really great cliffhanger scene, was basically the, the computer was basically attacking um, um, Tom Baker with all these cerebral images. And uh, Tom Baker was kind of writhing on the floor, and uh, and then what happened was it's like uh, uh, the computer was flipping out, saying no, no, you know, it's like uh, um, um, he's because uh, he, um, he was saying he's like he was saying that your um, you know uh, um, 
uh, he's like, you're not the doctor, blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, and then the, the machine's kind of flipping out. And then, and then, um, you see the machine, it has a sort of black and white kind of, uh, Tom Baker face. Okay. And, uh, and then, but in a little boy's voice, and this kind of made it a little eerie, mm -hmm. goes, who am I? Who am I? And that's and then that's how that episode ends oh, wow. before it goes into the next one. But that to me is a classic cliffhanger, and that's what I like. And that's my it comes from my love of cliffhangers. And there's so many other really great ones, but um, but to me, um, to me, Doctor Who always had these really great cliffhangers. They always had these really great way to end an episode so that you were jazzed up for the next one. Yeah. You're like, I gotta see what happens next. <laughs> you know, um. But I said they had so many great ones like that, you know, um, and uh, and and that that to me is well, that to me is why, uh, I, and I infuse that into my comic books. Uh, I, I I know that uh, there are many people like myself out there who really want to uh, be excited for the next thing to come. Because mm -hmm. the only thing is, if I I could tell a whole bunch of self-contained stories in each issue, but if I did that um there'd be a whole bunch of people who'd be like uh um who, who'd be like oh but well i don't have a reason to anticipate the next issue coming up yeah of course. i figure if i create tension and if i create this whole thing where they're wondering what the hell's gonna happen to this character like maybe like say the character's got a pistol in his face and they're wondering wow is he gonna get shot by yeah, the next episode exactly. you know that's the whole thing that's the anticipation they're they're waiting for the next that next issue they're like oh god I have to get this next issue when it comes out because I have to find out if this guy gets his face shot off. <laughs> now, I do have a question about cliffhangers that yeah. I've been asked by a couple of people who um, want to start writing. Is there such a thing as a bad cliffhanger? Uh, you any anything can you know. be made bad. The whole thing is is that it is all dependent on the execution. Okay. The whole thing is is that um, I find with. Um, I find with cliffhangers that you want them to be in a perilous situation that or, or at least an um or 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 the or or at least a mysterious situation. Mm -hmm. There has to be a drive. No matter what it is, there has to be a drive to want the reader to get the next story. Okay. Whether it be like the next book or it'll be the next issue of the comic. Or uh, or or hell, or if even if you're a television or movie writer, to get them to watch the next movie or watch the next episode of the series, the whole thing is there has to be some kind of hook to get them in, and the whole thing is is if it's just basically like oh you know, um, are they gonna throw that birthday party? That's <laughs> that, that nobody cares. No, nobody gives a shit. You, you do that, they're gonna be like oh I don't I don't care. I'm gonna go read Archie now. Oh Jesus! But uh, <laughs> that's awesome. But uh, but but uh, but but if the uh, situation is more intense, like I said, like if you got it, like a, say a pistol up at somebody's face, mm -hmm. or or maybe say if somebody's literally hanging off a cliff, or maybe say if somebody's getting thrown out a window, uh -huh. or uh, or uh, you know, uh, or maybe say um, or maybe say a monster's hovering over uh, overhead of the main character. Yes. You know, it's like, it's like that is a, an intense situation. That's something where they're going to be like, oh my gosh, what the hell's going to happen to this guy? 
Now, what, another question that was asked to me, and I know for a fact you can answer this. Yes. How does a writer prey on the fears of the reader in such a way that it's scary for them, but they want to continue reading as 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 well? Well, once again, I, I can only use my own experiences, but what I do to create fear is I basically just use my own fears. Okay, so you basically yeah. use exper experiences that you've had. Yeah, if I find a situation to be scary and, scary and intense, I write that into the comic book because I feel like it makes it more genuine. Because I know there are a lot of people that still, I mean, I know ev not everybody thinks like I do. I realize this. Well, yeah. But I but I also realize that if I write from my own experience, there are going to be enough people who are going to read that and be like, okay, this feels genuine. This feels like a genuine fear. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and I just put that into the stories. Whatever fears I have, and if, you know, I said if you see a scary, intense situation in one of my in one of my stories, and you're like, oh my god, that's so creepy. Well, that's a creepy feeling I have. <laughs> that's my own fears being projected in that story. And there's got to be at least a couple of thousand readers that have had that same feeling of fear that you have, or else you wouldn't oh, write yeah. it. Well, one of the reasons, like, like you know, and, and even you point this out, one of the reasons why uh, some of my horror stories have that eerie, creepy feeling in them mm -hmm. is because one of my biggest fears is, uh, is, is that basically someone's going to attack me when I'm not looking. Mm -hmm. I'll totally admit that. One of my biggest fears is that someone's going to attack me when I'm not looking. So that's why you have a lot of spooky scenarios like that. If I'm writing a more creepy story, if you see a lot of that, oh my gosh, the, it gives me the chills reading this because I yeah. feel like somebody's watching me, you know, like the song. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like that. But once again, that's because I'm projecting my own fears in there. Now, we feel as writers that if we can prey on emotions, whether it's anger, fear, love, lust, pride, whatever, and we can project it in such a way that the reader can mm -hmm. be like, hey, I felt that too, that is going to be a big catch mm -hmm. for them or hook to mm. want to continue reading because yeah. if you're just reading something and you don't feel that you can connect to any part of the story, well, then why the fuck continue reading, right? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, uh, like I said, in fact, uh, you know, um, uh, um, um, uh, I, I want to ask, uh, ask you before we uh, actually at least wrap up on this particular subject. Okay. I want to ask you um, also, what about, what about you? Um, What's what what like uh like when you're um when you're writing when you're like uh writing certain fears of characters and certain things like that uh what um what about you well, um how is it that you come up with that stuff? Well, I'm a sick twisted fuck, like you know. Yeah. And so I will take fears of actual people that I know, mm -hmm. and I will incorporate that within characters that I write. Like, say, someone that I know has a fear of clowns. Yeah. And so I will incorporate the fear of clowns into a character because I'm sick. Yeah. Or say they have a fear um, of aggressive dogs. Or yeah. they have a fear of spiders. Or they have a fear of enclosed spaces. Anything that gets your goat. I'm like, I want... To make people feel what if, that character's fear. What if you have a fear of lawyer goats? You know, that's <laughs> a thing. If you have a feeling of fear 
Because some goat in a suit's gonna sue your ass? <laughs> you bet your fucking ass I'm gonna put that in the story. <laughs> because why not? Because fear is a great motivator to not only figure out why you're afraid of that. Exactly. But to learn how to get over that fear. Yeah. Well, and then it's actually, oh, I find, uh, especially uh, when, when projecting my own fears in something, it's, uh, I find it's a good therapy because the whole thing is, is that it actually helps you learn why it is you're afraid of that thing. Yeah, because if you, if you don't know why you're afraid of something, you're just afraid of it, then to me, I know this sounds really callous, but that's kind of a meaningless fear. Yeah, well, the, you, you, well, and then, you know, sometimes there are some fears, fears that are just aren't rational. Yeah. But, but, <coughs> go, I think going through the process actually helps you understand why it is that it's even there. I mean, yeah. some, you know, um, you know, because uh, uh, there are people that I know, sometimes they, sometimes they hate, hate the sound of crinkling paper, but... But, uh, you know, and, and maybe they don't know it, but after, as time went on, they maybe, uh, at some point in their life, uh, a memory comes back to them, and then they realize that the reason they hate crinkling paper is because maybe, say, um, maybe, say, a sibling or a parent, um, would crinkle paper in front of them. Yeah. And, and it, it just got to the point where it just was a trigger for them. Yeah. And so, I, I would dare say that when you're writing, make sure that you use the um, as much emotion as you can within scenes to make it as real as possible, even if it's fiction. Yeah. Because the truest fiction brings out mm -hmm. the realness within the fiction that you're writing. Oh yeah, I, and see, I, I I think I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I actually think that. Uh, um, the more you put, um, genuine, uh, the, you put like genuine experiences in there and genuine emotion in there, you said, whether it be your own or, or maybe a friend's. Yeah. The whole thing is, is that <clears throat> people are going to read that and they're going to be like, Hey, um, they're either going to say, I can totally relate to that. Or I at least know a person that can. You look at Stephen King's it. Yeah. How fucking scary was that when you read it? Like seriously. Oh yeah, no, that, 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 uh, that that's traumatizing kid material. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, and then you know on and yes, I know it's quaint and antiquated by today's standards. Mm -hmm. But but you know what? When when I watched the mini series as a kid, the one with Tim Curry, oh, it scared the hell out of me. Tim Curry's smile alone. He didn't even have to do anything. He just creeped yeah. the fuck out of me. Oh, yeah. That's right. That scared the hell out of me. So, you know, people can go ahead and say, oh, the newer it was scarier. But it was just like, you know what? He's like, you watch, you watch that as a, we watch that as an impressionable, uh, uh, you watch that as an impressionable nine-year-old. Yeah. And, uh, and then go and, yeah, and then go and tell me uh, that that's not scary. It's like, yeah, you know, it might not be scary by today's standards, but, you know, watching it at nine years old pretty much messed me up. But uh, That's right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I think uh, now is probably a good time for us to uh, get to our uh, book recommendations. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, do you want to go? Because yeah. you headed up this podcast in the first place. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, let's see. Um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of books... Um, 
because I've actually been going and, and doing this for research and study for Ronan Brothers, mm -hmm. um, I'm actually going to suggest, uh, in, in terms of novels, um, I'm, I'm actually going to suggest uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War. Okay. And uh, this is more, I mean, and, and granted, yes, I know people are going to back, but that's not Japanese, it's Chinese. But here's the thing. it it What's great about The Art of War and why I think people should read it is it's a good look into into battle strategy mm -hmm. and, and how people do things. And in fact, it can apply to anybody in the world. It's not just an Asian philosophy thing. Now, granted, yes, there are a lot of things that are specific to, the, uh, to countries in that area, especially yeah. China. Yeah, exactly. But... Here's the whole thing. It's It's got a lot of things that pretty much apply to people on a worldwide scale. So, no, if you want to, I mean, you know, it's, it's like like patience is one of them that's in there. And, uh, it'd be, you know, that's the whole thing, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, that's that's the book I would recommend is Sun Tzu's Art of War. That was a very awesome book. I remember yeah. reading it when I was younger and I yeah. was like, this is really cool. Like, I yeah. honestly... Love your recommendation because yeah. I, I believe that everybody should read that book. Yeah, at least once. <laughs> at least once. And uh, let's see, my uh, comic book recommendation. Um, let's see. Oh, man, once again, so many so many great story arcs that I've been thinking of. But, uh, you know, I'm going to give um, a friend of mine a shout-out on this one. Okay. And uh, my friend uh, Chad Harden, he's uh, he's actually um, um, you know because uh, he's had some great comic book runs over the years. Mm -hmm. But uh, but for those who but, but but for when he got popular, most people know him as the uh, artist for Harley Quinn. And uh, and you know and that's how, and that was one of the things that helped him to get like big time. Yes, big time. But what I'm going to recommend of his is actually something he did prior to that. Okay. I'm going to recommend Chad Harden's run uh, uh, on uh, some of the dark, uh, uh, some, I'm sorry, some of the Dragon Age books. Um, he did. Uh, for those who don't know, that uh, Dark Horse actually did a run of some of the uh, 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 some Dragon Age comic books, which tied in with the stories of some of the video games. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Chad Harden actually did the art of some of those early ones that's actually kind of cool oh yeah I, I in fact i've got the uh i've got the entire run of the uh because there was like three volumes of books or of graphic novels that he did with them and i've got i've got like a big thick book that compiles um all three of them nice oh yeah it's uh dragon age library edition yeah <laughs> <laughs> Nice. That's that's yeah. actually pretty cool. Yes, and uh, no, it's actually very good. And no, and I highly recommend it. And Chad's art, Chad Harden's artwork is just awesome. And and I'm once again I want to give him a shout out because Chad Harden is one of those people that very much like oh, like Raz. He's one of those people that has encouraged me in the comic book industry. Um, has helped helped me get to where I am today. Um, and uh, and no, he's a great friend. And uh, you know. He could have easily just been one of those people be like, you know what, you suck, don't quit quit writing. <laughs> but but he encouraged me, and so no, I will always be grateful for that. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And anyway, what about uh, what about your uh, book recommendations? My book recommendation is going to be a Stephen King one because mm -hmm. I feel Stephen King has touched so many different lives with mm -hmm. the 
litany of books, like literally a litany of fucking books that he's written so far. He's continuing on this journey to become basically God on Earth with his literary works. Yes. Um, I am going to throw out a book that not a whole lot of people have read, um, but that it is definitely an interesting book that I feel people should read. Yeah. It is a compilation called Night Shift. Oh, nice. I've heard about that, yeah. And it has assorted stories. um, Yeah, they're they're very short stories, right? Yes, and they're like 10, 20 pages long each. Mm -hmm. And... You could, if you're into writing short stories, and even if it's just horror or suspense, and you want to get to the nitty gritty about how to throw out all the fat in all of your stories and just get to, you know, the dirt and the grime of what mm-hmm. <coughs> a good intense horror slash suspense story is, definitely pick Night Shift up by Stephen King because not only are they scary, not only are they suspenseful. They will show you the perfect way and structure to write a story that will not only captivate your audience and your readers, Mm. but will keep them guessing every page. Mm, That's actually the mark of a good writer. And this is what I'm saying. I mean, um, and then no matter what, I mean, I'd say it's a good recommendation because Mm. uh, Stephen King. It's one of those guys, whether he's writing a short story or a very, very long one, you know. Um, the thing is, is it's always very good. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, so whether it's something as long as, like, say, Freaking the Stand. Oh, God, yeah. That's, that's fucking Bible of a book. Yeah. <laughs> or whether it's one of his shorter ones, like uh, when he did the, uh, uh, or, you know, it was one of his shorter ones, like when he did um, the, um, the, uh, the the series of short stories that had things like uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and The yes. Body, you know. Mm-hmm. Even if it's things like that, they're always still very good. Exactly. And uh, let's see, what about your uh, comic book recommendation? Comic book recommendation, I'm going to go for an oldie because uh, we've done mm-hmm. new ones for a while mm-hmm. and I want to dig deep. You're good. Really deep, like down into the belly of the beast deep of a comic arc that not only I really, really enjoyed, but I know that I believe you have. Yes. It, you remember the Silver Age of Green Lantern? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that was uh, was what ran from the late fifties clear up until the late sixties. Yeah. Yes. Now there was a story arc where the Green Lantern had been captured by the Red Lanterns, mm-hmm. and where he had to kind of not negotiate, but he had to manipulate and trick them Mm -hmm. um, into letting him go. And then he came back with the Green Lanterns and basically just like fucking massacred Mm -hmm. a bunch of the Red Lanterns. I can't remember who wrote it, which really pisses me off. I'm going to have to go back and check. Mm -hmm. But it's when Hal Jordan Mm -hmm. had um, gotten captured by the Red Lanterns and he had devised a way to get out of it. 
and so this was uh this was um um this one I don't um oh no I'm gonna have to check this out but if it's got red lanterns in it I'm wondering this is actually a later story. It might be a later story. Oh, because the Red Lanterns weren't introduced until later. Um, so you're t- oh, you're talking about like the sixties and seventies. Well, because no, no, I was gonna say no. Uh, actually, the Red Lanterns didn't get introduced until the early two thousands. Really? Yeah. Oh no, it not wasn't until the after Red... that. Until after they did Rebirth. No, it wasn't the Red Lanterns. It was the Black Lantern. Uh, no, the, the, but my point is, the, for the mo- longest part, it was just basically Green Lanterns and Silver Sapphires. What do you think about the Silver Sapphires? Yes, that's what it was. Because I was going to say... So sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, because you know, there was only, um, there was, uh, yeah, because no, they, they didn't do, um, the different colored lanterns until after, uh, Green Lantern Rebirth. I feel retarded now. No, you're good, you're good. <laughs> but no, no, I, I understand the story you're talking about, but yeah. no, I think that was actually, I think that was a, um, I think that was a story about the Green Lantern and the Silver Sapphires, because that one was a Silver Age book. Yeah. Um, and you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's what I'm saying. He's like, no, no. I, I just figured you got the name wrong. Yeah, I did. No, you don't have to feel stupid. No, no, the whole thing. Just <laughs> the story's out there. The story does exist. But you yeah. just, I think uh, the only thing that happens, and once again, this is the wonderful way our brains work. Think exactly. about our brains like the Wikipedia of everything. Because the thing is, yeah. we sometimes we can slightly tweak a memory to make it to make it fit. So sometimes it'll actually not be what the reality is. This is true. So, so in your head, you probably did see the red lanterns, mm-hmm. but but no, but but I'm but all I'm telling you, and I'm just pointing this out, not to be a dick, but just pointing this out because yeah. of what happens. The red lanterns mm-hmm. didn't get introduced until after rebirth. Seeing you're right. Yeah. So. Um, no, but what you're thinking of was it was a story, and I and I think I know which one you're talking about. It was a story that was involving um, Green Lantern and Silver Sapphire. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Green Lantern had gotten captured yeah. by Silver Sapphire, and he yeah. had to fu- devise a way to get away from them. Oh yeah, and uh, and and this was also when uh, Green Lantern had the stupid ability of uh, well, uh, stupid disability, I should say, of when uh, his weakness was that he could not, um, he could he could not touch anything yellow. Yeah, which was really. Stupid. Yeah, his ring had no effect on anything that was yellow. <sighs> yeah. Well, that's regardless of the fact. Yeah. That's <laughs> stupid of the fact. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. But, but anyway, no. But either way, I know what you're talking about. It was a good story arc. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and and like I said, it, uh, you know, it, so you're totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, no, you, you were right on the story arc. You were j- The only thing you were wrong on was just the villain. Yeah, and that comes with old age. Yeah, <laughs> but you're good. But you're good uh, anyway. But no, that was a good. That was a good story arc. Good classic one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, no, definitely. If you want to check that out, that's actually good. One of the better Hal Jordan stories. Yes, I will full on admit. Listen, you know, and, and I'm not trying to be mean. No. Listen, Hal Jordan's okay, but to tell you the truth, if if anyone else knows Kyle Rayner, yeah, Kyle Rayner's my favorite Green <laughs> Lantern. Uh, but then again, that's that's more our generation, isn't it? Because yeah. Kyle Rayner's the one we grew up on because he was. Because the thing is, we we started getting into comic books in the '90s, and that's when they basically had decided to turn Hal Jordan into a bad guy, and then and then Kyle Rayner became the Green Lantern. Didn't um didn't they make Hal Jordan a Red Lantern? No, um... What was he? He wasn't... No, no, this, once again, this was prior to Red Lanterns. No, he, um, turned into an entity called Parallax. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah that's he, right. He was basically like the he, he he basically had like all the power of the um of 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 of, of the guardians basically. Yes, that's um, right. And uh, and uh, he basically he became this sort of reality art altering bad guy named uh named Parallax or Dick. Oh wow! <laughs> and uh, anyway, but uh, no, but that's a story for another time. Okay. But anyway, no, these were great recommendations. This is uh, this is also a great podcast. I uh, you know I'd like to say to everybody, you know, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to us, and it's been a pleasure having you here. You guys have a fantastic week, and we will see you this Saturday. And treat each other respectfully. Damn it! Say ya. <laughs>